Before you start listening to this podcast, we've got a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, which will give you full access to everything on our website. And we'll also throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. From time to time, people living in big cities pass these extraordinarily lavish church buildings built in a range of architectural styles, always to the highest quality, and bearing the name of Church of Christ Scientists. And they must wonder, who are these Christian scientists that they can afford to build and own such magnificent real estate? And these days, they're unlikely to know the answer because they won't have met a Christian scientist. It's a once thriving American denomination, boasting many famous and wealthy adherents, Nancy Astor, John Ehrlichman, Doris Day, that is now in intensive care, forced to sell many of its monumental buildings as the number of Christian scientists has shrunk from over a quarter of a million Americans in the 1930s to a few thousand a day. We're not sure how many, but quite a few of them are in retirement homes. The story of Christian science is essentially one of a sect that grew explosively, maintained a controversial presence in American society, and to an extent British society for decades. Controversial because its most famous teaching was that medical treatment was useless because all disease is really spiritual in origin and then died, just as countless denominations, many of them far more conventional than Christian science, are now in the process of dying. There's a whole graveyard of mainline Protestant denominations whose churches have been turned into carpet warehouses and the like. So Christian science is relevant today chiefly as an example of how religions die, a question that's preoccupying many larger churches, such as the Episcopal Church in America or the United Reformed Church in Britain, or indeed the once mighty British Methodism, that don't have the supporters and therefore the money to keep going. With me to discuss this subject is John Anderson, a writer specialising in sectarianism, both religious and political. John, if we could just start with a quick introduction to Christian science. It was founded by Mrs. Mary Baker Eddy. It sprang out of that period of American religious experimentation that lasted for about 150 years until the second half of the 20th century and gave us Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists and Scientology. None of these was Orthodox Christian, but all of them, with the possible exception of Scientology, attracted sober, conventional, church-going Protestants often, especially in the case of Christian science, with plenty of money in their pockets. And now that era is over, isn't it? Well, it really is. What we find with a lot of these denominations, Christian science is a good example because it started as a sect, it was controversial, and yet it did get a foothold in the establishment. There were lots of very sober business people, politicians and so on, who were Christian scientists. We know of Ehrlichman, of course, but a lot of old-time liberal Republicans were Christian scientists. And it did, in fact, have quite a foothold in Hollywood, too, through people like Doris Day. But it was, in a sense, the actor's religion before Scientology was the actor's religion. And yet, now it's in very sharp decline. It's 
followers are quite elderly and what's left are these very striking buildings which are very often being converted into offices, apartment blocks, whatever. But as a religion, it's in very much terminal decline. Its teachings, apart from the famous one about not going to doctors, are actually quite difficult to grasp. I was reading Science and Health and the Key to the Scriptures, which is Mary Baker Eddy's New Testament, as it were. And quite often it's hard to know what she's going on about. John, I wonder if you could just have a stab at defining the essence of Christian science. In a nutshell, I would say it's what old-time theologians would have called Gnosticism. It's mind over matter. And in a sense, what we see thriving is not so much Christian science, the denomination, as the offspring or sibling of Christian science, which is the New Thought Movement, which appears through people like Norman Vincent Peale, the Prosperity Gospel. It's in a lot of New Age culture now. That still thrives, although the more, if you like, aesthetically conventional Christian science has really gone into very steep decline. Well, this raises an interesting question, because if we look at those 19th and 20th century American sects that I mentioned earlier, two of the ones that are thriving, Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses, are the most controversial the ones that society finds most difficult to deal with, Mormonism, because it has an entirely novel cosmology, an entirely implausible Third Testament, dealing with the story of Israelites in ancient America. Jehovah's Witnesses, because of their apocalyptic and inflexible theology, their rigid belief that only they are saved, their utter rejection of the outside world. Yet they're doing well. I wonder why that is. I think there are two aspects to this, and one is, if you like, the ideological aspect, which is that if people have bought into something that's implausible, that's unusual, that's perhaps stigmatised by general society, then they will be much more invested in it. And the second thing is that these are religions that really do make quite serious demands of their followers. Mormonism has... For instance, it's purity code, no alcohol, no caffeine, no, no smoking. Expects you to do two years of missionary work halfway across the world. It's not an easy religion to be part of. It's not a religion for the half committed. So people who, have, who are in it tend to either be full in it or drop out. There's, there isn't really a Mormon equivalent of the Catholic who goes to Mass at Easter and isn't seen for the rest of the year. Well, I think you touched on something important there, which is a major school of sociological thought associated, I think, above all with Rodney Stark, which says that the more a religion demands of you, the greater its rewards, and therefore the religions that survive are precisely those that make demands of their members. Now, one of the criticisms of Christian science during its heyday was that it didn't engage in missionary activity, mm. I've been reading with enormous pleasure, in fact, rereading the letters of Joyce Grenfell, the beloved English actress and entertainer, passionate Christian scientist. Joyce Grenfell was the niece of Nancy Astor, a truly ferociously committed Christian scientist, and of course, the first woman to, to take her seat in the British House of Commons. 
Clearly, Joy found it rather difficult to live up to the specific demand of Krishna science that you not make use of conventional medical care. And indeed, Joyce gave in when she got cancer at the end of her life. She says under pressure from her husband, I suspect there were lots of Krishna scientists who, stricken with serious disease, would announce that they were only doing it you know, for their husband or their children. But apart from that, it was essentially about church-going. And this rather nebulous, but for Joyce, deeply comforting spirituality. It was a profoundly conventional denomination in everything except its teachings, which reminds me a little bit of Unitarianism, which flourished in America and to an extent in Britain, and appeared to be just part of the nonconformist landscape. Now, in fact, Unitarianism is not... Trinitarian Christianity at all, by definition. And yet, culturally, it was part of the nonconformist tradition and it has evaporated along with that tradition. There's actually a good example of this, which is the Community of Christ, what used to be the reorganised Church of Latter-day Saints. And the differences between the Utah Mormons and the, the Midwest Mormons are a, are a very complicated and interesting story. But Essentially, the reorganised church, who were the anti-polygamist faction in the 19th century, have not thrived as the Utah Mormons did. And part of the reason for that was that they, from roughly the 1950s, 1960s, have assimilated to liberal Protestantism, culturally assimilated. If If you worship in a temple and you've got a Book of Mormon, you're not really a liberal Protestant, but... They've become essentially part of the liberal Protestant landscape in the Midwest, which has itself gone into very serious decline. This isn't a pattern associated only with what you might call sects. Mm. Look at Judaism, for example. Liberal Judaism is not particularly thriving, particularly in the early 20th century. It tried to be as much like Christianity as possible. Some of the rabbis wore dog collars, they sang hymns. Their synagogues looked remarkably like churches. What is thriving is Haredi Judaism, the ultra-Orthodox, who are as distinct from the outside world as it is possible to be and make absolutely huge total immersion demands on their members. And one of those demands is to have lots of children. And the result is that the Judaism of the future is likely to look paradoxically very old-fashioned, even exotic or fundamentalist to Western eyes. That's true, and uh, there's a well-known phenomenon that whenever America goes into recession, the membership at liberal synagogues goes down. Membership at orthodox synagogues is not affected, and the ultra-orthodox, of course, are, are thriving. I think one of the things that holds people to liberal religion, liberal synagogues, for instance, or to some extent the liberal churches, is mostly family ties, mostly tradition, and... To some extent, they can act as a halfway house for people who are making their way out of a more demanding, more conservative religion. But they're not going to attract people from unbelief. They're, I think, too close to the societal norm to do that. Well, let's look at the example of Catholicism. I think there was a time in the 1960s when liberal Catholicism seemed sufficiently distinctive to attract people, if not from unbelief, then from other religions. No longer. The conventional Catholic Church is in sharp decline, and one wonders how on earth the composition of a document such as the Pope's recent apostolic exhortation on the Amazon 
essentially just a string of ecological platitudes, is going to fool anyone with missionary zeal. No, and I think the, fu- the future of religion is that it's going to be very much a minority pursuit, but the religions that do exist will be those that make quite strenuous demands, might be demands of your time, of your lifestyle, of various restrictions they place on you, or it might be demands of beliefs that will seem exotic to mainstream society. So the religions that will survive and thrive will be Latin Mass Catholics, Haredi Jews, Mormons, or strict Muslims. And, of course, black Pentecostal Christianity, which is one of the most vibrant forces in the world today. The one thing I do notice, having studied at great length a Pentecostal church, is that turnover in many of these churches, if there isn't a very strong sort of ethnic and community background to ensure your membership of it, tends to be pretty rapid because people can only maintain that level of intense commitment for a short time without vastly reinforcing social structures, which just don't exist. They have to get the resources online. They do, and the, the turnover in these churches is massive, and really they have to rely for the long term on a hard core, on a fairly small hard core of people who will stick with them for the duration. And have lots of children. Yes, and have lots and lots of children. So I feel perhaps I've been a little bit patronising about Christian science. I think the lesson that the big Christian churches, maybe in the long run Islam, can learn from the experience of these once very vigorous denominations is that it can happen to us too. It can indeed, and with a bigger denomination than Christian science, it might have more critical mass to sustain it for a longer period, but churches do die, and often the the very vigorous churches, Quakerism, Unitarianism, things that were quite an established part of the religious landscape for a very long time have almost disappeared. And what about Catholicism in Europe, for example? Well, indeed, Catholicism in a country like, say, Germany or Belgium, or, for that matter, the state Lutheran churches in Scandinavia, it doesn't really have critical mass of the faithful. What it's got is lots of buildings and plenty of money, and that can only sustain you for so long. Well, all they need is for Germany to abolish the church tax, and they're absolutely screwed. And lots of Germans are formally leaving the Catholic Church to, to reduce their tax bill. If that trend picks up, will be a very serious problem for a, um, a German church that has been largely coasting on its money for a long time. I think if there's a lesson to be drawn for this from mainstream religious leaders is that they've got to be leaders of a very high quality and they've got to know exactly what they're doing. And when I look at the mediocre quality of the leadership of mainstream Christian denominations, including the Catholics, including the Pope, I don't feel at all confident about the future. I'm not sure that there's anybody who's got a clear vision, or at least not an appealing vision. And in a sense, the churches in, certainly the mainstream churches in Europe, have have not got the idea that Europe is now missionary territory for them. It's not a place where they can rely on being part of the furniture of society in a way that they were until a couple of generations ago. Or even a couple of decades ago. Or even a couple of decades ago. John Anderson, thank you very much. <laughs>